I am so excited today to have Sister Joan Miller back with us. You've become a favorite of our uh, listening audience, Sister. I'm enjoying coming here. Thank you so oh. much for having me. And today is the feast day of someone. You kind of you gave us a teaser during the Feast of St. Clair right. about this a fantastic woman, the saint, who today we celebrate her feast day, and that's St. Agnes of Bohemia. Right. Um, usually we call her St. Agnes of Prague, although sometimes on the Internet you'll find things St. Agnes of Bohemia. Uh-huh. Um, I like Prague better, yeah, I think. Yeah, she's definitely um, owned by the people of Prague. In fact, there is a, a folk tradition in Prague that when the body of St. Agnes is found again, you know, it was lost because um, the Moldo River, it, it flooded into the monastery, and somehow in trying to protect the body, they actually lost the body. Uh-oh. So, yeah. That's bad. You know, the medieval body and the relics of the medieval body, this is a very precious, um, precious thing to have. And somehow the body of St. Agnes was lost. Oh, no. And so there's a folk tradition in Prague that Prague will... Um, again come into its glory days when uh, the body of St. Agnes is found. Did anybody pray to St. Anthony? We should. <laughs> <laughs> I'll mention that. <laughs> oh, it's probably, she's, well, we know that she's with a beatific vision. Yes. And her life is an extraordinary tale that really parallels in so many ways St. Clair's. Yes. But on a bigger scale, societal-wise, at the time. Absolutely. St. Clair called her the other half of her heart. Oh. And even and she did that from her deathbed with all her sisters around her, including her blood sister Agnes of Assisi. Mm-hmm. There were a lot there are a lot of Agneses in Claire's life unfortunately. A lot <laughs> so, of lambs. Sometimes yeah, sometimes <laughs> you get them mixed up, but Agnes of Assisi is Agnes's blood sister. They grew up together. Her name was Catherine before she entered religious life. And Agnes of Rome who Claire also talks about, is the virgin martyr Agnes from, uh, you know, Roman times. And then this Agnes of Prague is the sister she calls the other half of her heart. Just as an interesting side trip, when we talk about St. Agnes of Rome, and I'm sure that was part of the thought when both the other Agneses were named, this, this spectacular St. Agnes of Rome. She was someone who was martyred because she would not enter into marriage and wanted to remain consecrated to Christ. Right. And so you look at these other Agneses, and isn't that something? Well, both of them, um, Agnes of Assisi, who was called Catherine before um, Francis named her Agnes. Oh. And the reason was that, um, you know, Claire ran away from home, and the the knights of the of her family lost um, her marriage, mm-hmm. which basically meant all the riches and everything that a husband would bring to the family. Only a couple weeks later, Catherine, who becomes Agnes, ran away from home, and the knights, there was no way they were going to lose two, you know, two of these dowries, two of these, um, this money coming in. Mm-hmm. So um, from the husband, not the dowry, that's what the woman has, but uh, the money coming and the lands and the marital, the ties, basically. Right. So they went after Catherine and really beat her up. In fact, beat her so badly that in hagiographical literature, they it basically says in her life that she became as heavy as lead, and they oh. had to leave her there. And probably what happened is they uh, she they probably left her for dead. And of course, in that condition, being so beaten, they couldn't bring her back to Assisi. It would have been a shame on their family. Mm-hmm. So Clara nursed her back to health, and when she was healthy. She joined Claire and Francis because of the fight that she had put up. 
um, basically called her Agnes after the virgin martyr Agnes oh, of Rome. Fascinating. Yep. And today, again, we're talking of Agnes of Prague. And I, why don't you begin the story? You're the better storyteller than I. So please, <laughs> just tell us of this wonderful woman's life. Well, Agnes of Prague is born in 1211. And she's the youngest daughter of King Premisel Ottokar I and Queen Constance of Hungary, who were uh, king and queen at that point of Bohemia. And in fact, Ottokar, uh, Premisel Ottokar, is the, really the first um, king of Bohemia, although there is good King Wenceslas who actually came before, but um, sure. this is a recognized king of right. Bohemia. At the age of eight, Agnes is betrothed to Henry VII, who is the son of the German emperor, Frederick II. So she's, okay. she's into that family. And because Henry, this little boy king, was being educated in Austria at the time, they sent Agnes to Austria to be educated with him so that they could basically, she could learn to become queen. Sure. And he would learn to become king. At what age again? She is at this point eight. Oh, so young. But it's like a so far, but this is sure. so cool. Okay, so <laughs> the person, the the man in Austria that they were with, this uh -huh. duke in Austria, was Leopold the the sixth, and he really saw he saw Henry and how he was growing and that he was going to be the king, and he had a daughter, Margaret, and so he undermined Ottokar's agreement with Frederick II, and he proposed that his daughter, Margaret, should get Henry uh -oh. and not Agnes. And he basically pulled this off. And so Agnes was sent back to Bohemia as the rejected girl, basically. And, of course, Ottokar was extremely angry because it basically meant that Austria had this tie then to the Germans rather than Bohemia having the tie to the Germans. Remember, this is the time of the Holy Roman Empire, right. and the Germans were in charge. The Germans were in, in charge of this. So they lost a very important political uh, It was a situation. huge political alliance. So Ottokar, Agnes's father, declares war on Leopold over Agnes. Wow. <laughs> So eventually, the you know, someone from England wants Agnes's hand, and they go through this series of alliances, all of which basically fails. And then Frederick II, in the end, asks for, who is the Holy Roman Emperor himself, his wife dies, and then he proposes to marry Agnes. Well, this Frederick II... Um, I mean, he's a very colorful character. He's very cultured. He uh, grew up in Sicily. He knows Arabic, which is, this is the time of the Crusades. Mm -hmm. So he's able and to enter into alliances with, um, with the Moors, and he's able to do business with them, and he understands Arabic culture. So in one sense, he is, um, I mean, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant diplomat. Um, in another way, he is a real problem to Rome and to the papacy because he always wants to, you know, the Germans had northern Italy and the Germans had Sicily and the south, but they didn't have the papal states, which were sandwiched in the middle. Mm -hmm. And, of course, nice area, Umbria. We know this is beautiful area, right? Sure, Umbria, all forest, uh, moving lovely. into Tuscany. This is a lovely area. And so... 
Rome always felt um, sandwiched in by Frederick, and uh, Frederick he did he did things that weren't um, that weren't always politically correct to toward Rome, like mm-hmm. ransacked churches and overtook monasteries. That would put you at odds. It wasn't always a good thing, right? Um, so, and he had a num- He had kind of a harem. Um, which, of course, works in Arabic culture. Uh, it doesn't so much work in Catholic culture. So Not so much. No. So no. he's sort of in the cracks, and he wants to marry Agnes, and Agnes brilliantly. Remember, she's basically educated as a royal, so mm-hmm. she's no dumbbell. Political, politically, she's very, very bright. And so she writes to Gregory, uh, Gregory the Ninth at that time, who's pope, and... Um, ask to basically be accepted as a virgin. And Gregory IX, because he doesn't want Bohemia connected with Germany, for many reasons. Um, He doesn't want the Knights of of Bohemia fighting with the Germans. Mm -hmm. And secondly, Bohemia has a lot of silver, silver mines in Bohemia. Mm. So he doesn't want the wealth of Bohemia being connected with the Germans. So he writes to Agnes and... and, um, accepts her, basically, as a bride for Christ. To stop the alliance between Bohemia and yes. Uh, Germany. Yes. However, um, Ottokar, Premisal Ottokar I, of course, wants this alliance with Germany, but he conveniently, um, and maybe this is an act of grace, he dies in the process. Mm-hmm. And Agnes's brother, who is Wenceslas, not good King Wenceslas, but Wenceslas I. The other Wenceslas. The other Wenceslas, yes. Wenceslas I um, loves his sister and is kind of even uh, dependent on the diplomatic talents. Her brains. Her brains, yeah, mm-hmm. of Agnes. And so Agnes talks her brother into this also. But Wenceslas has to go back to Frederick II, Frederick II and basically say, uh, guess what? <laughs> yeah. Agnes is going to say no to you and is going to basically um, be a nun of some sort. Mm-hmm. And Fred- we have Frederick's response to this, which is really delightful. And Frederick basically says, well, if she would have snubbed me for any other man, I would have you know, basically uh, taken this as a snub. But since she has, she proposes to marry, you know, the king of kings and the lord of all, um, what can I say but, you know, respect her decision? Good and answer. So she, isn't this great? Yeah. So she gets out of this marriage. She basically rejects the Holy Roman Emperor. Wow. And she gets out of this marriage. But it gets better because Agnes could have joined. There, was, um, there were sisters, um, noble women, and uh, sisters who, from the royal family um, at St. George's, right next to the royal castle in Prague, mm-hmm. which if, if people have ever gone to Prague, it's the castle, the big castle on the hill where right. St. Vitus is. The Vitus. So this is, this is where Agnes lives. This is a woman, again, who because of her choices and of her, the way she thought, changed history amongst yes. countries. I mean, this is big, big scale. Yes. Now, Agnes's choice is interesting in that she didn't join the Benedictines who were at St. George. She didn't join them. The Benedictines at this time, for the most part, um, 
especially these royal, noble, royal monasteries. Not every Benedictine. There are many, many Benedictine monasteries, and many of them were poor and just basically little farmhouses, Mm -hmm. um, little country houses with, you know, with farm girls who basically joined this house. Um, But Agnes's choice certainly couldn't have been that. Um, It would have had to be um, like this monastery of St. George. So she didn't choose that. And she didn't join the Cistercians, which, although um, although poor, were centrally organized and very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. So she didn't choose wealth, and she didn't choose power. What she chose was this fledgling movement. It wasn't even an order. Fledgling movement of Franciscans. And her example in this is Elizabeth of Hungary, who was oh, her cousin. Another strong woman. Another strong woman. So Elizabeth, we know, established this hospital in Hungary um, and died not as a sister but as a laywoman, but as a person who endowed this hospital and actually formed social services for the poor um, in, in Hungary. Agnes of Prague does the same thing in Prague. She uses her dowry, which is, subst- I mean, she has a royal dowry. It's so it's lot. not just, you know, like St. Francis, well, I take what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. I mean, this isn't, you know, uh, although Francis was rich, he was a merchant's son. But, sure. you know, once he was disowned, he just basically had nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, you know, a little thing. It would be like Bill Gates' daughter, let's say. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> giving away her fortune. A royal dowry. I mean, this is up there with the t- the richest people in the world. Right. I mean, so she had a huge. She had huge resources. Yes. Yes. And her family had huge resources. Bohemia is in Hickland, definitely in regard, mm-hmm. you know, and as far as Rome is concerned, or as far as even the German Empire is concerned, but rich. It has money. And so what she does is she builds this hospital in Prague for the poor, for the sick and the poor in Prague. And she founds an order, the Croziers of the Red Star, which is basic, basically set up as a hospitaler order. Um, it's an order of men, and she basically sets them up as administrators of the hospital. But her mother... <laughs> She's still around? Yes, her mother, okay. the queen... It basically sets herself up as chairman of the board. Let's put it that way. Wow. <laughs> so they do the lower level administration or, you know, basically all the administration except the buck stops with the royal family. Mm-hmm. Um, and Agnes herself then builds a monastery, um, a small monastery uh, by the standards of a royal monastery, but still, I mean, quite a quite an establishment. Mm-hmm. Definitely not San Damiano. Oh, yes. It's a royal monastery. Um, and now, today you can visit it. It is the National Gallery in Prague. And That's it's, a monastery. Yeah. And it's, wow. um, it, it's a wonderful place. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful place to go through. And if you go to Prague, you know, there's the Judith Bridge, and then there's the Jewish Quarter, and you keep moving, and then you come to Agnes's monastery, so you can visit today. Mm-hmm. Um, and Prague, by the way, is a wonderful city. Um, it is a little sad because um, the communist, uh, you know, when they were, um, when they entered into Prague, really 
destroyed a lot of the Catholicity of the city. So it is, many of the churches are museums, many of them are still closed. If you walk through neighborhoods, um, if you kind of get out of the city and walk through the neighborhoods, you will still see churches, small churches with barbed wire fence around it that they oh. used as concentration camps, basically, mostly for religious women mm. and for priests in Prague. You will still see that. Wow. Um, and many of these were Catholic churches or they were Hussite churches. You could tell Hussite church by the cup, you know, the um, that'll be on the door. I'm not familiar with Hussite. Uh, yes, the Hussites are a later movement, um, and the big the big cry. It's a Protestant movement. And the big cry okay. is that uh, lay people should be able to have the bread of Christ and also the blood of Christ. Um, and this cry, of course, is taken care of in Vatican too. Now sure. we receive both the body and blood as Catholics. Fascinating. Yes, it's a wonderful place. To, it's a wonderful place to visit. Um, so anyway, Agnes um, chooses to join this small movement. Um, in, and there were Franciscan brothers in Prague. It seems there were two parts of this movement. One mo- part of the movement, which was very conventional, which was basically established through um, a convent called St. James in Prague, and another group of more ragtag kind of poverty friars. Mm-hmm. And that's the group, interestingly enough, she was attracted to. She was really attracted to this ideal of um, the scriptural line, um, you know, um, if you wish to be perfect, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That line seems to affect a lot of people. I think of Anthony of the Desert. Yeah, it, it, it comes from the very beginning of religious life, this, this call to poverty. And she really wanted to live this call to poverty as, I mean, I mean, that's really incredible. I mean, it would be like Princess Di not only enjoying Mother Teresa and her company, but actually joining Mother Teresa. You know, sure. you know it would be something like that. Wow. Um, so she takes on these friars as basically, um, you know, they advise her a bit. But they're not, she's not she, um, beholden to her, to them, like, um, a, like spiritual directors who are telling her, no one has, no one ever told Agnes of Prague what to do. <laughs> I would take it she didn't, she maybe didn't give an ascension of obedience. No, definitely okay. not. She's a go. very self-assertive woman. Uh, she has some character flaws, but um, as far as setting things up, running the finances, knowing what she wants, and doing the politics behind what she wants, she's very self-sufficient in that way. I would imagine once you've been able to go toe-to-toe with the head of the Holy Roman Empire that you would feel pretty confident in your ability to make decisions. Yes, yes, and she yep. definitely was. She was well-trained. If anything, the um, the trip down to Austria you know, gave her a wonderful education, a wonderful imperial, really, education. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she, she builds this monastery, and it's a double monastery, uh, a double cloister, um, a small cloister for the friars who are attached to her monastery, and then a large monastery for the noble and uh, members of the no- royal family and the noble women uh, who join Agnes. Was it easier for them to do that after she had her example, or was that something that noble women could do? I mean, to be able to join a monastery. Oh, yes. And they could have done okay. it at St. George. All right. Um, but Apparently, Agnes had this following, 
and women joined her. So at that point, she's basically got her monastery up and running. And at that point, she contacts Gregory the Ninth and says, well, I built a monastery. <laughs> How about that? And so I'm going to need, um, I'm going to need your blessing. So it's a very interesting way. I mean, she's very definitely uh, a royal. Sure, she can do it and then say, accept yes, it. Yes, guess what? Here I am. You know, guess what? Here I am. Um, which is, in many ways, I mean, she's not unique in this in the 13th century. Um, so she does this, and uh, Gregory gives her permission to have this monastery. But when Agnes was doing the business of setting up the monastery and the hospital, and it was a business, not only did she give her dowry um, as an endowment to the hospital, but her mother... Um, endowed the hospital with her own, from her own resources. The Duke of Moravia, who was her brother, and of course the king, everyone mm -hmm. was endowing the hospital. So the way Agnes set up the business of this big plant is that all the endowment, all the her royal dowry and all the royal endowment, which was substantial, this hospital still exists in Prague today. Wow. So that's how wonderfully they did the business of endowing this place. Seven centuries. Amazing, isn't it? Oh. It's still a serving the poor in Prague today. Wow. So they put all the money for the endowment into the endowment for the hospital. And she left her monastery completely unendowed. Now, when your brother is a king, this isn't a... This is okay. I mean, you, you know, you're not going to go hungry. Sure, sure. <laughs> as long as he stays in power. Mm. But we know, I mean, she's in the hinterland, really, in the east. Mm. And there are a lot of issues. I mean, um, the Austrians were problematic. The Germans were problematic. The Turks were problematic. Uh, you know, the, uh, the folks coming in from Russia and places like that. Were I mean, there was a lot of, there were a lot of invaders in these lands, a lot of people who are looking at these new lands in Eastern Europe and thinking they'd like a share. So as long as her brother remained king and the political situation stayed st stable, she was fine. So it was a real act of faith for her. Today it would be something like, you know, someone joining a, a very, very rich woman, uh, setting up a, a, a foundation for a very poor, like an AIDS hospital, let's say, mm -hmm. putting all her money into this foundation for the AIDS hospital, um, retaining some administration, but, you know, uh, basically the money belonged to the hospital, and then um, setting herself up uh, in a Catholic worker house and hoping for the best. It would wow. be something like this. This right. is exactly what Agnes did. Now, Agnes had rich, rich relatives to you know, which cushioned this a little bit, um, but it was still a supreme act of faith to do this. Mm -hmm. And as as you see in the in the end, she basically dies of hunger. Really, because in fact, as she grows older, um, and the king dies, her brother dies, which is a real sadness in her life. Um, one of her nephews takes over, and he goes to war with everyone and depletes the royal coffers, and the kingdom falls. And Agnes is the only royal that remains in Prague, 
which is why the people of Prague love her so much. The rest took off. Every, everyone else was either imprisoned by the Germans or fled. Wow. Yes. And she, um, at her monastery, I mean, life, she really lives among the poor in Prague. Her monastery, she situ- situates her monastery not on the big, I mean, it's not in, on the big mountain, you know, um, near the castle, the royal castle. It's in the valley by the river on a piece of land that's always flooding. Mm-hmm. This is where she puts her monastery. Wow. And has it been uh, harmed by floods? and by Yes, very much, very much. Um, and in fact, has just been uh, kind of revitalized again. Um, the communists, I think, they used it for a, a shed for animals, basically. Oh. They had animals in there, and there was a hovel. It was just a terrible mess. And um, basically now, in our time, uh, the state has restored it. And now it, you know, because it is a grand building. I mean, it's an incredible piece of Gothic architecture. And um, because it was the royal mausoleum, so the royals ended up being buried um, in Agnes's monastery, became this royal mausoleum. Um, so it, it's a very kind of interesting story. Now, so at that point, um, Agnes begins this correspondent. We have co- correspondence. We have four letters. Um, too bad we don't have the letters that Agnes sent to Claire of mm-hmm. Assisi. But we have four letters that Claire sent to Agnes. And these four letters really seem to be the only four letters. When you think, you know, the friars are basically trucking these letters, at least from Claire's side, across the Alps and, you know, mm-hmm. from Italy, you know, to Bohemia. It's not FedEx. It's not FedEx. And, um, you know, later on in Claire and Agnes's life, um, the friars uh, preach a... They preach a crusade against Frederick II, you know, by the authority of the papacy, and become the enemies in a sense of um, at least some of them. The, the German friars kind of stayed neutral, which which helped them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, the Italian friars, um, you know, they were preaching this crusade, and so um, they risk capture by Frederick's troops if they tried to cross the Alps. So communication really is cut off for a long time between Agnes and and Claire. There was no even possibility of sending a letter back and forth. Is Claire the one big spiritual uh, guidepost for her at this time? When you look at the 15th century or the 16th century when you had the great reforms beginning and you had Teresa of Avila and, and Ignatius and then you even look over and you see Jane de Chantal and, and Francis de Sales. I mean you see all these relationships. Did yes. Agnes have anyone guiding her spiritually in the 12th century? Agnes um, is unique among um, even Franciscan women in that we have no name of a spiritual director or a person who wrote her life. The sisters seem to have taking care of things, and um, she relies on her on Claire. Wow. Yeah, so you have this woman directing, Claire directing Agnes, um, and Agnes really knowing what she wants. So she writes to Claire. First she writes to Claire and says, here I am. I want to be associated with you, which is very unusual Um most women who were associated with the Franciscan order at the time of Claire 
kept their distance from Claire because Claire was really radical. Her mm-hmm. form of poverty, she wanted to have an unendowed monastery and to live among the poor. So basically that meant her sisters lived in monasteries, in little houses, connected with churches outside of the city wall, which made them vulnerable to attacks and to thugs and to rapists and everyone else. Mm-hmm. And she lived among the poor, which meant they ate whatever the poor would bring them. And that's sort of what they had. It's like the scraps from the table almost. The, the scraps, not from the rich man's table, but from the poor man's table. Mm. And then the friars who were connected with the monastery would go to town and beg for them to subsidize. And that's basically all they had. So we have, you know, in Claire's life, we have stories of how hungry the sisters were. And they truly were very, very poor. By doing this, however, um, first of all, because she had noble women who joined her, Claire, um, they would continue to get money every once in a while. Like, And we have letters, you know, we have a letter of a sister um, or a document of a sister. It seems that, you know, someone died in her family and she got money and of Claire basically giving this money away. So um, it this poverty of Claire was a gift that kept giving to the poor mm-hmm. uh, in very real ways. In other words, money went directly to the poor. Besides that, Claire, raised as a noblewoman, as a woman with education, had skills, particularly medicinal skills. So she knew how to, how to raise herbs and how to use them. Mm-hmm. And we have stories of people coming to her, you know, these poor, poor people living outside the walls, coming to her with her children. Their children had this problem or that problem or old people. Or, and um, Claire would do these healings. So she was, no, she was a place where poor people could go. Also, you know, this is before Freud, before counselors, before, you know, so these poor people lived really awful lives. They didn't have social services. They had no voice. They had no one to protect them. And they would go to the monasteries and bring their, you know, a couple potatoes or a couple turnips or whatever they had. And they would put them on the, you know, give them to the sisters and they they could tell their problems. They could tell their stories. And someone listened to them, were praying for them, and would give them blessings. So this is the kind of ministry service that Claire was doing by living among the poor. Mm-hmm. Agnes insisted on having this same kind of poverty. And as a royal, uh, this, was, uh, this was way more than the papacy wanted to bless. <laughs> so when Agnes wrote to the Pope and said, hey, guess what, I'm here, blah, 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 he wrote back and said, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then he switched all the business that Agnes had done. And he said, the endowment that the hospital has now belongs to the monastery, which will take care of the needs of the hospital, but the endowment basically belongs to the whole institution, monastery, hospital, and you will control it. Mm. Which, if you think about it, Agnes as a Franciscan sister would have, communally of course, but would have had more resources as a sister because she had her 
her brother's endowment, her other brother, the king endowment, her mother's endowment, and her endowment, she would have had all of those resources as a Franciscan sister, which she didn't have as a woman living in the world. Wow. So Agnes just felt, there's just no way Agnes could do it. She felt it was a betrayal of her vocation. And she really wanted to follow Claire. She really felt that Claire, um, what Claire, Claire calls this kind of poverty, the one thing necessary. It was the only thing that Claire fought for in her life. In fact, when the papacy, when Gregory the Ninth tried to endow her monastery and forced, basically, the, forced the issue on Claire, Claire went on a hunger strike. She refused the legislation, and she went on a hunger strike. And it caused so much commotion that Gregory the Ninth um, basically acquiesced to her. So how does Agnes get out of the situation with Gregory the Ninth? Wanting her to run this huge, essential institution. Well, they go back and forth, and they fight for a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they they have dialogues, and Gregory gets quite upset with Agnes uh, because having a royal in this kind of poverty is it's one thing if you have a poor little monastery of somebody like Clara. She's close to Assisi, and. If this little monastery at San Damiano, if it goes under, the papacy can bail them out. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not a big investment to bail these sisters out. But because you'd have to, right? Because Claire is so famous. I mean, sure. she's the other half of Francis. And even right. in her lifetime, Gregory the Ninth made a kind of a mistake in that when he commissioned the life of St. Francis for the, the office of St. Francis when mm-hmm. he canonized St. Francis in 1228, he had Thomas of Chilano write this life, and he approved it. And in that life, he basically canonized Claire. But she was still here. She was still here. She was very, very sick at that time. And he probably thought, she's mm-hmm. not going to be around us, you know, around very long. But she ended up living to 1253. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Which wasn't always the best thing for Gregory, because... Claire was a very strong woman, and um, she knew what she she knew what she needed to do. And her vocation was this commitment to poverty. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't budge, even if the Pope told her to budge. She didn't budge from that from that um, commitment. And Francis told her not to budge. So the last will and testament that Claire received from Francis was to treasure this poverty as your highest gift. Mm. So she had orders from Francis her, himself not to budge on this, on this one issue, the one thing necessary. But if you had a royal establishment that went under, whoa, this is a whole different kind of investment from the papacy. And if this caught on, you know, like let's say now you have all kinds of women who want this kind of deal with the papacy. Mm-hmm. Well, the papacy could go under protecting all these women and, mm-hmm. you know, coming to the rescue because it doesn't help the papacy. I mean, you're not going to have a royal woman um, in dire, dire poverty and the papacy just says, well, you know, you know, she was stupid enough to enter in that, you know, not to endow herself. We told her to. Going to have to bail her out. And they would be faulted for not making sure the bookkeeping was all straight. Yes. And that the rest of the church wasn't protected because in their minds, the failure of the, of the women for not endowing their monasteries. Absolutely. Yeah. 
from the point of view of the women. So that's the point of view of the church, and sure. it definitely is a serious point of view. Right. From the point of view of the women, the poor in the Middle Ages, we have this with the Elizabeth of Hungary too, the poor in the Middle Ages were completely left behind. The church basically was had abandoned the poor. Mm-hmm. And they really felt the church needed to be with the poor. And that they it was their vocation to do this. It it's basically the Mother Teresa vocation. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't compromise that vocation. So Agnes went back and forth with Gregory for a number <laughs> a while. And Gregory got very perturbed at her, basically told her to grow up at one point, wrote her a very nasty letter and said, you know, um, you know you're know, you trained in business, get a grip. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? um, but, but Agnes held on. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Gregory needed some help from the king of Bohemia against Frederick II who was his nemesis, you know. The Germans were always trying to take over the papal states. He's living pretty long, this Frederick. Yes, he does. <laughs> and Frederick II lives a long time, didn't too. We, yeah, didn't we start the story with his yes, son? Yes, <laughs> yep, yep, And he's yep, still yep. here. He's, um, he had some good Arabic food. It's that German blood, yes, I think. I think so, too. So um, anyway, um, so the Pope, because there's a religious in the family, it's, it's the custom, the Pope writes to Agnes to get favors that he needs from an alliance and favors that he needs from the brother, Wenceslas I. And um, Wenceslas writes back and says, I'm certainly happy uh, to be at your service along with my knights and my wealth and my kingdom and everything that I have, which, of course, is substantial. In other mm-hmm. words, I'm willing to... Um, to have a substantial alliance with you and to put everything that I have at your service. However, I have this sister, and she's asked you a favor. You may have heard of her. Her name is Agnes. <laughs> she's asked you a favor, and you have always been very good to her, and she respects you and is deeply, you know, holds you in deep affection and has always been grateful to you for her favors, the favors that you've given her. But this one particular favor, which is the favor of living in this kind of poverty without endowment, uh, hasn't been, hasn't quite, how does he say, hasn't quite entered the cha- the chapel of your hearing. <laughs> so ah, <laughs> sounds like a diplomat wrote that. So he says, um, I am happy to acquiesce to what you need. I'm happy to give you whatever you need if you give my sister what she needs. So here we have a very interesting thing. I'm happy to put all my wealth and all my resources and all my nights at your disposal if you let my sister be Mother Teresa. That's <laughs> basically the deal. Wow. And, of course, the papacy is in, you know, he's in the corner. Mm-hmm. Gregory the Ninth is in the corner. So he gives her what's called, what Claire had to, the privilege of poverty, which is the privilege not to be forced to accept endowments. That's how it's written in the, that's how the papal document is. You are, if you decide to accept endowments by yourself, you know, the, Gregory the Ninth is a canon lawyer. He's a brilliant mm-hmm. canon lawyer. And so he, he basically says, well, if you, um, if you want to accept endowments, you know, if you and the sisters decide that, if you come to your senses later on, you know, and you decide to accept an endowment or two, no problem. You don't have to talk to me. Just do it. But no one will force you to accept endowments. 
And of course, Agnes um, refuses endowments till, till her death. And her sisters keep this tradition um, till the Hussite Revolution when basically the convent is taken, the monastery is taken over. I can see, as you said in the beginning, that Claire felt that she was the other side of her heart. Yes. That Can you imagine for Claire, especially after Francis dies, she is trying to stay true to this charism that is really revolutionary in her approach to the world. And here comes a woman, a very strong, world-known woman. Yes, very famous Very lady. famous, mm-hmm. who says, I am walking right next to you. You could almost imagine when Abraham met Melchizedek, you know, uh, there is somebody who gets it, who understands what I've been called to, has the same calling, and they walk together and support each other. That must have been tremendous. It would literally be like if Princess Diana would have joined Mother Teresa and embraced that life completely and with all her heart and with all the resources at her disposal. That's right. I mean, it would have been... Radical, absolutely radical. What an affirmation for Claire, though, on that yes, scale. Yes, And for Claire, um, it really, the rule of St. Claire, uh, which is, um, you know, this kind of a tragic part of the story. Um, eventually, this rule does become more and more and more institutionalized. And um, poverty, you know, as the one thing necessary, uh, is overtaken by by other things. You know, they become mm-hmm. much more institutionalized, um, uh, much more protected in that way. But um, Claire, the rule of Saint Claire, in in the rule of Saint Claire, in the in the middle of the rule, which Claire writes, poverty and this, the the will that Saint the will and testament that Francis gave to her, she inserts it right in the center of her rule, which is the point in um, in mid. In the Middle Ages, you didn't put the point at the end. It's different than Western thought. You mm-hmm. put it in the middle. What's most important is in the center. People thought in in circles more than they thought linear, linearly, which is mm-hmm. very hard for Westerners to understand, but that's right. kind of how it worked. Um, and Agnes, we know that Agnes sent a rule to the papacy way before Clare. And the, this rule was in negotiation. Of course, it was rejected. Um, Gregory rejected this. But this was in the air with all the cloud of Agnes behind it. Um, eventually, as Claire lays dying and the Pope visits Claire, because she's such a famous person, a well-known person. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, she's Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, as he visits Claire on her deathbed, she just basically refuses to die until this rule is approved. And he approves this rule only for her monastery. And then, according to the life of St. Agnes, St. Agnes also got permission to follow this rule. So it's a a rule that uh, was so precious to Claire. And she, she, um, it says that she she held it and kissed it many, many times. And we know that that this rule, getting this rule, was a collaborative effort between Claire and between Agnes. That wow. the two of them worked together and and received this treasure. And this rule wasn't discovered really until they um, they unearthed uh, Claire's tomb in the 1800s, and the rule 
this rule, this papal document, the original document, fell out of the, the folds of her habit as wow. they unearthed her. Yeah. So now we have actually the original document of the rule. 13th century. Boy, what a Very time. Very strong, wonderful, saintly women. Oh, my goodness. We owe it to ourselves to come to know because they, yes. if not for them, you know, you wonder if you would have Mother Teresa, if you would have, I mean, you, she knew of their example, I'm sure, and was bolstered by their example. Yes. Well, in every age, there are women. There is the, the charism in the church to see the poor and to um, where the need is there, if doing something directly and immediately is helpful, um, there are people always in the church who are called to do that mm. um, from the very beginning of Christianity. Sure. In fact, some say this is why Christianity spread, because the church did that in, in neighborhoods, in slum neighborhoods. Um, so it, it's always been part of the Christian heritage it's just one of the ways that the church responds to the plight of the poor. A very beautiful way. Of course, it's a way I'm complete. I mean, this is the way we're committed to my community. Um, we're poor Clares who follow this, um, this idea that this kind of poverty is the one thing necessary. So there are always people who have this particular charism. Um, and people who have more institutionalized charisms, which, of course, I mean, where would we be in Omaha, for instance, without Mercy Hospital That's right. or without the religious high schools that we have or without Creighton University? You know? That's right. So um, all these charisms are necessary. And in the Middle Ages, and Claire says, um, they had this image of the varieties of the virtues, which they actually saw in different colors. And... If you are going to be the bride dressed for the king, you want your apparel to be clo- you want to be clothed in the varieties. So they had this image of the church clothed with all these gorgeous charisms as the bride for Christ. Mm. You know, it's not just one one thing or the other. It's it's the beauty of um, of all these charisms that you know that make, as Mother Teresa would say, something beautiful for God. Well, that was beautifully said. Thank you. (laughs) And someday, we never know, maybe we'll find the body of St. Agnes in Prague will once again be... (laughs) I hope hope before I die, they find the body of St. Agnes. I do, too. What a celebration in Prague this would be. And yeah, the the people of Prague just suffered so terribly under communism that Mm -hmm. this would be a great, great joy, and I think a real revitalization of Catholicism, of Christianity in Prague. Well, I think that's a good hope. Yes. Yes. Sister Joan Miller, thank you so much for coming and, thank and you sharing too, this day. Thank you so much. You will come back Happy again. Happy feast. Oh, okay. you too. Thanks.